This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guests are Perry Zern and Kevin Thompson, editors of Intolerable, Writings from Michel Foucault and the Prisons Information Group, 1970. To 1980, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2021, out now in hardcover and paperback. Welcome, Perry and Kevin. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Right, yeah, we usually like to start off uh, our discussions by asking our guests to let our audience know a little bit about your background, and in particular, uh, in relation to the subject of your book. So can you guys uh, lead off on that? I will let me ask Kevin first and then Perry. All right. So I came to this work from um, my undergraduate days, actually, of reading Foucault uh, then. And I was also doing uh, activist work at the time. And uh, can, can I ask you a little biographical question there? Oh, sure. uh, at the time, uh, when was that when you were an undergrad? Was Foucault still alive and active or, or was it? past that. Uh, you know, Foucault died in 1984. And so I was actually, when was I an undergraduate? Uh, late 80s. So it would have been just right. after his death or just around his death around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so he was, he had just either passed away or was in the last few years of his life. And uh, I had read him as an undergraduate. I took an undergraduate course on him uh, and was fascinated by what I was reading there. And also I was doing this activist work and never really thought dr- that they had direct connection to one another. But as I moved along in my career through graduate school in particular and on into my academic life more broadly, um, I began to become more and more interested in that relationship between Foucault's and historical analyses, uh, most famously of um, the history of madness, of course, but also discipline and punish for the material we're talking about today, most particularly. And um, where that led me was to uh, discover that he had been himself an activist uh, with regard to the issues of, 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 of prison uprisings and prison reform and prison uh, uh, um, uh, act- activism more generally in his time. And I became fascinated by that. So, and that's really how I came to this material. Okay. Yeah. And I'm a political philosopher by training. So I think a lot about um, how different political and social systems are formed and in particular, how they change. And um, at the time I I was in graduate school, I was actually working with Kevin and um, I was especially excited about thinking through not only the material effects of ideas, but also the material ground of ideas. And so when Kevin um, kind of developed this concept of translating the archives of the Jeep um, which specifically do that, right? They tackle the material effects of ideas about innocence and guilt um, and, and how that builds a system of, of incarceration, but also the material ground of ideas. So um, what Foucault was actually um, involved with, physically involved with, that would lead him to produce things like discipline and punish. So at the time when Kevin said, hey, do you want to jump on board with this? I said, I, I, you know, I, yes, absolutely. Right, right, right. That's interesting. Um, so, 
Can you tell us a bit more about the uh, Prisons Information Group or JIP and their importance? I mean, obviously Foucault, you know, is is uh, well known in terms of his importance, but but the Prisons Information Group. So I'll I'll address that. Uh, the Prisons Information Group was founded. Uh, by really Daniel DeFer, if we want to be uh, specific about it. Daniel DeFer was uh, Michel Foucault's uh, partner, longtime uh, partner. And uh, Daniel was involved uh, with uh, the proletarian left uh, group in France at the time. And their editors of their journal had been put in prison in the wave of repression that went through France after post-68. And um, he came up with the idea, uh, him and, and other colleagues and the group came up with the idea of uh, holding a kind of special tribunal. This was uh, a model of, of activism at the time, uh, a kind of people's tribunal, popular tribunal, to indict the uh, court system, the judicial system in France uh, that had put their, uh, their leaders in, in prison. And he said he could recruit his partner, Michel Foucault, to act as a kind of intellectual leader, intellectual front uh, for the group to provide it protection. Foucault had just uh, uh, risen to the highest pinnacle of uh, intellectual life in France at the time. He was uh, just had been named a, a professor at the Collège de France. And uh, so he could provide a kind of uh, cover for them, protection for them. And uh, he, Foucault agreed. They met in late 1970, uh, late December 1970, uh, to form the group. And Foucault immediately said, look, I think this idea of a popular tribunal actually plays into the carceral system too much, right? It allows too much. And so what we need to do is actually be more of a documentary uh, function, sort of a more documentarian function. And that's this idea that he you know, named the group uh, the prison's information group. He really wanted to produce information that was would have otherwise been hidden or been um, unknown uh, and gather that from the prisoners. And that quickly became, it quickly became clear to him and to the whole group. They assembled many intellectuals at the time and others who were associated with prison, former prisoners were involved from the beginning, uh, that to do that, to provide that kind of documentation, they really needed to go to the former prisoners or the prisoners themselves and let them speak for themselves, let them take the floor, as we uh, put it in the book and the way they had put it as well. And that was really the, the formation then of the JEEP, the Prisons Information Group. It was announced at the beginning of 1971, and it lasted really through you know, the January of 1973. So it was a very short period, but it, it provided material support for uh, prisoners in in um, who were incarcerated and uh, their families, and uh, it provided support for their uprisings when that took place in seventy one into seventy two. And I would just mm -hmm. add that what's um, really wonderful and important about the Prisons Information Group is the way in which it uh, aimed to serve as a relay station or some kind of communication hub where information from within prisons and from and from um, prisoners' families in particular could be circulated both in and outside of um, the prison so that there so that the network of understanding and capacity for action was enhanced um, and that happened in in a larger way just sort of across Paris but then there were also uh, subgroups of the Jeep at different other um, cities across France so that so that each um, smaller group was interacting with others and getting ideas from other cities um, so it was really really interesting in its in its network structure and its and its preference for kind of lifting up and giving a platform to prisoners and and their families in particular and then it gives way right then as as Kevin said in uh, early 1973 it gives way to the um, what was called the Prisoners Action Committee, which was led entirely by prisoners, uh, ex-prisoners, and, and currently incarcerated prisoners at the time. So the that the movement that started really with these kind of intellectuals and incarcerated intellectuals after May '68, um, it, it it kind of hands over the baton to the committee, um, to the Prisoners Action Committee, and it's that Prisoners Action Committee started in in really '72, '73, that produced a lot of the pressure that. Um, that that allowed them to secure the the death penalty abolition in France in 1981. So there, there's a it's kind of that's a larger situation of where it went after after it uh, its heyday. Okay, that's interesting. Um, maybe I, I'll take up a couple of points here uh, that I'd like you to explore. Um, 
you know, the the, uh, the fact that his partner was with the proletarian left, and I believe Foucault would have left uh, um, the Communist Party in the fifties, and uh, and certainly he would have left uh, Marxism, I believe, by by the seventies. Um, at this point, that would I would like you to sort of comment on that as well as um, it seems to me that this uh, concentration on information that Kevin was talking about rather than the tribunals uh, definitely seems to be uh, part of uh, his theoretical uh, concentration on discourse uh, and, and, and making that central uh, to um, political I, I guess, analysis or, or thought or philosophy. Um, so, yeah, c- can you expand on that either, uh, Perry or Kevin? Perry, why don't you go first? Uh, I would just, I would, I'll, I'll pick up on the, the second question on information and I want to highlight one of the things that's really fantastic about the book, Intolerable, is that we uh, have marshaled representative samples of a number of not only this kind of speeches and um, uh, intervention, public interventions and essays and things that the Jeep was involved with, but also its publications. So it has a, a series of publications called the Intolerable Series, and it's there that you see the results of not, not only this gathering of information, but then the circulation of information. And that um, what shows up in those publications um, includes questionnaires, results of questionnaires that were circulated secretively uh, in and outside of prisons. You have prisoners' letters, um, and 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 kind of reports from different personnel, medical personnel inside the prisons, things like this. So just to kind of unpack what that information itself was, uh, and then. And then to say, you know, Defer has a wonderful piece, which we also have in, in the book called uh, Information is a Struggle, right? Um, mm-hmm. That that information itself is never, it, part of the, the Jeep's work is to say information isn't just facts, right? There is always mm-hmm. what it is that we know and what it is that we ask, what it is that we want to know, what it is that we pass on and share with one another is always informed deeply by the structures of um, power and the value structures in, in a particular uh, society. So it's there, the emphasis on information is not just to move or to, to, to add to discourse, but rather to shift the, the contours of, of discourse itself. Mm-hmm. Evan? Yeah, I'll just pick up on the, the first part of that and then uh, say a little bit more about uh, what Perry's saying, because I just want to um, uh, affirm what, what he's saying there. Um, but, to go back, to Foucault, you're, you're absolutely correct. Foucault left uh, the Communist Party in the 50s. Uh, he was official uh, member of the party early on in his, in his uh, academic career, uh, but uh, left the party uh, for a variety of reasons. The, the biographies are quite uh, precise about this, but um, the, he left the party in, in, in that period. He remained a member, I would say, of the non-aligned left, right? He was still a leftist uh, throughout. His political sympathies are fairly obvious throughout that, that period. Um, Defer is his connection to the proletarian left, and um, he really does see a, a, a tactical problem, as I mentioned, with taking up the the, the, the public tribunal, which had been the sort of the, the model that uh, particularly various Maoist groups at the time, uh, the proletarian left among them, uh, had been employing to try to critique uh, the various systems of oppression in society, various social systems. And um, what you see Foucault tried to do is, and this is where I want to come back to what Perry was talking about, is this emphasis on uh, information, as you say, discourse, uh, and the importance of that. And already in this period, it's really, you know, DeFerre who makes this point initially, we, as we see in the sort of uh, record, that um, information is this struggle. It is already caught up in the, 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 the power structures and the resistance to power uh, that's going on. And um, in, in those very distinct material conditions of prison life. And I think it's really important to see that that insight about how discourse is always, you know, material in that sense, um, is incredibly important for the whole group and how they proceeded, because it was never the case that they were just reporting what went on and disclosing, as as Perry was saying, it's not a matter of just reporting the facts of what went on inside prisons, though that was important. 
uh, it was to put those facts into uh, the contestation of those conditions themselves. So I think that that's really uh, a significant move. It's significant in the tactical sort of the tactics of uh, of the left uh, uh, of, of the time, and it was a real innovation in um, activist um, practice at the time. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting because um, uh, you know I, I as someone you know also who was um, you know, following Foucault since the 1980s, and and um, and, and and thinking about the, the these ways uh, that uh, his discourse um, impacts uh, actual politics, um, uh, you know, both uh, both from a critical perspective and, and a more sympathetic perspective. It, it, it's it's um, I I think you know um, looking at at the prisons information group. Uh, is important to to shed uh, insight into that, and uh, and as you um, like, for instance, there's a certain kind of um, I, I don't know if the word contradiction is correct to, to put, but but um, but I mean, as you said, Foucault thought the tribunals, uh, you know, were too much implicated in the in the dominant discourse, if you want to put it that way, uh, to accepting too many of the assumptions and. And, uh, and and discourses of of the carceral system. Um, so so what would be interesting, perhaps, if you could explain uh, to the readers is you know what what are some of the the counter discursive information that was was presented? Like for instance, undermining the the whole notions of I suppose innocent or, or guilt or or perhaps it might be things like that. So that's on the one hand. Um, the, the sort of counter discursive uh, strategies and um, uh, and e- examples and, and things um, uh, that they would be doing in, in terms of presenting information and, and reshaping discourse and challenging the discourse itself. Um, but also, uh, it seems that they also participated in the dominant discourse as well, to, you know, for an, in, in a kind of Foucauldian analysis, participating in meaning that. Uh, it, it appears that they they did struggle for legislative change reforms and and they achieved some success with the abolition of the death penalty, which is pretty much standard left liberal politics. Which which kind of you know he he spent a long time uh, criticizing uh, in in his theoretical work. But uh, yeah, so I would like you to to reflect on on that on on giving examples of the counter discursive uh, information etc and how he tried to disrupt discourse at the same time i suppose participate in the dominant structures to get reforms and change etc i don't know who wants to, uh, to start off uh, perry or kevin uh, perry i'll take that first and i'll let you um come back to some things here because i know that this is a rich question so i, re- I really appreciate this as much in it so let me let me give just a few examples of uh, perry uh, We'll give more, I'm sure, but um, a couple, a few examples of, of counter-discursive strategies. Um, the first publication uh, that they, and probably their most famous, if anyone knows anything about the Jeep, they know this first um, booklet they published, which was just really uh, reporting of surveys that they had conducted by handing surveys out to the uh, family members uh, who were visiting uh, their incarcerated uh, loved ones. Uh, they would take them in and the, they would, they would fill these out surreptitiously and then, uh, bring them back out and, and, and hand them over to the various members of the sheep. And so they published those representative samplings of those, uh, in their first, uh, publication, right? Uh, and it, uh, in the first of the intolerable series, and it is really a kind of documentation of most particularly the material conditions of what was going on in everyday life, uh, in the prison system, the, the lack of hot water, the lack of food, the lack of bedding, uh, the inhumane conditions, as DeFerre called it at the time, uh, that uh, they were enduring in the prison system that would not otherwise be known unless it was publicized in this way. So making public of that, that's a kind of counter strategy, a counter discourse uh, strategy that they employed. Um, the second is, uh, the second example I would give is they also published a little book. This is outside of the old booklet. Uh, outside of the Intolerable series itself, but it's a little booklet uh, that collected all the grievances from the uprisings, the groups. There was a massive uprising in 
very, uh, all the prisons, pretty much all the prisons in France in 71 and 72, uh, largely sparked by the Attica riot in, um, in the United States, the uprising there. And um, they had grievances from each one of those, um, uh, those uprisings. Uh, they collected all of them and published those as well to make known what were the actual uh, complaints, what were the actual uh, problems, issues that the um, prisoners themselves articulated as the reasons for their for their um, for their um, uh, rebelling against the, the the authorities they were in, uh, the, the authority under which they were uh, living, and I think that that. Those are also a, a, an attempt to counter the dominant strategy, the dominant discourse of, well, these people are, you know, being well cared for, being well taken care of, but they're serving their time because they've committed, you know, uh, illegalities. So they have to be punished. And that's what we're doing. We're punishing them effectively, but humanely. And that was to, that was to, both of those were to counter that. Um, Harry, I'll let you take it up from there. Yeah, two other perhaps primary examples of the counter discourse. One is simply the insistence that prisoners' voices matter. And over and over again, Foucault or um, Deleuze or, or uh, um, a, a number of other folks in, in the Jeep would be asked to speak about or for the situation and to publish their essays in leftist magazines, but also in other places. And, the, and they would say, you know, we have these essays by prisoners, people who are currently incarcerated, who have an assessment of the situation. And, and they would push that those writings forward and, and notice and mark when, how often it was that um, the real, that was the real struggle was to replace, in a sense, the academic abstract from the outside view of what prison is and what needs to be done with prisoners' own assessments of the situation. So that's one example. A second might be there, the, the second um intolerable series booklet was uh, called was was with respect to um the jeep investigates the a model prison is what it's called and and the model prison is this new um sort of at the time right the uh, the pinnacle of what incarceration could be it's it's replaced a lot of the um the the dirt and the grime of incarceration with with a much more sanitized kind of process and it's replaced much of the kind of hands-on policing and disciplining of prisoners with more surveillance tactics um but they they argue in this that the quote improvements of incarceration in that sense the making the system work better is still intolerable in some way it is still a, a an a, a fundamental alienation of a per, of an uh, imprisoned person's self from their body, from their friends, from their family, from their relations, from um, ways of making sense and of growing as as human beings and of reaching, um, it, you know, library resources and things like this. They're, like it's the improvements are not enough, and that leads into your your second question about some of the the tensions around. Um, the Jeep working in some cases for some reforms, right? It understands itself primarily as an information group in, the, in a very minimalist sense. But there are, of course, because the Jeep is so uh, complex as a network, and it's informed by what prisoners are doing and what family members are insisting upon and what um, medical and legal professionals are doing and, and intellectuals on the outside, there are other strands. And in some cases, there was an insistence like, no, we need right to a radio. We do. Like we just, we just need this. This needs to happen. This is part of the information activism. We need to get information inside too. Um, and so there was, there was reform in that sense. Um, so I think I, I see not a contradiction between the minimalist. This is an information group, and the some of the reforms that the Jeep worked toward, and even some of the strands of abolitionist discourse that the Jeep has. I don't see. I don't see an. an um, I, I see a tension there, but it's it's a tension that has to be there because of how robust the collaboration itself was. Okay, all right. Um, you uh, let let's get to the title of of um, the the book and w which comes from the the series uh, Intolerable. Or, um, so, what uh, what does it actually mean? What what is its significance? And, and in particular, from a Foucauldian angle, because I think it could be. Um, you know, in, interpreted very generally in, in terms of reformist discourse. But uh, um, 
and and there, there may definitely be aspects of that in it, but but certainly there there is a Foucauldian angle to it. Can you elaborate on that, um, Perry or Kevin? I don't know who wants to go first, and let me invite Kevin first, and then Perry. Okay. So, one of the ways I came to this project was trying to think about this precise question because I really came to look at the Jeep more intensely uh, when I was trying to come come up with a, 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 an answer to a question that Foucault never posed. Uh, and that is the question of judgment, right? How do you make a judgment about a state of affairs and about its status, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, or whatever? And that question was perplexing me, and I brought it to Foucault. As I said, it's not a question that Foucault himself poses, but I wondered if he gave us any resources to think through that. And I noticed that it's, when I first came into it, that this, this term, intolerable, and this other term, intolerance, uh, were you know often used by Foucault and others in the Jeep at this time. And the more we die that we you know we dove into the material, um, we found it all over the place. It's ubiquitous. It's 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 kind of you know, obviously the title of the series, but it's obviously all over um, the material itself. They invoke it constantly, but what they never do is theorize it. They never give us a document, a, a, a theorization of the concept and tell us, here's what we mean precisely by this term. So we can infer what it meant uh, from their usage of it. Uh, and that's what we, we do. Uh, and we can see that that changes uh, over time. So let me just be very brief about this and say, initially, I think what the group meant by what is intolerable uh, and what we ought to be intolerant of um, is repression. Right, repression. Uh, Foucault at one point in a radio address literally says, "What is intolerable is repression." I'm paraphrasing, but uh, that's pretty close to, to what he actually says. And this is in 1970s, and so he's in early 1970s. He's saying, "You know, this is the problem of intolerable. What's intolerable is uh, repression in all its various forms." Now, over the course of their engagement with uh, the incarcerated, they learned that that had very precise meanings. This, Perry was talking about the, you know, the the lack of information, the, the censoring of of newspapers was one of their major complaints. The lack of heat uh, was a major complaint. The lack of adequate um, showers was a major complaint. And they say all of these things are intolerable. But the Jeep would also say not only is the prison intolerable, but the schools are intolerable. The police are intolerable. The uh, the uh, university is intolerable. The hospital is intolerable. They had a whole wrath of things they thought were repressive in this way. But what the material conditions, I think, really began to suggest to them is that repression is not the only way or not the primary way in which um, uh, the intolerable manifests itself or displays itself. It displays itself also in terms of the constraint or the restraint on someone's ability to determine their own lives. So you see this particularly in the uprisings, Uh, the literature there, uh, the responses there uh, in the grievances says very clearly that what they want to be able to do is determine their own lives as they move out of incarceration. And they want to be able to inter- have committees to govern themselves within uh, the uh, uh, prisons themselves. So it seems to me that there's a transformation there undergone by this notion of the intolerable or intolerable as initially repression and eventually the um, uh, uh, constraint on uh, freedom and the ability to govern one's own life. Yeah, and I would add a, a, a note about this corollary term, intolerance, right? That the Jeep the, the suggests that we should be intolerant of what is intolerable, which is interesting and certainly rings differently today in our context than it did 50 years ago. Um, but they use this phrase, not just intolerance, but specifically active intolerance, and they use it only once, as, as so far as we know in the in the archive itself, but that the intolerable um, should no longer be sustained, but instead should be turned into an active intolerance of the situation, and that activity there, the 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 not only the assessment that something is unsustainable, it is unsurvivable, it is unjust, but to to activate against it, to activate to uh, uh, not only break it apart, but um, break out from under it, right? That is that is the the move that the Jeep 
makes in, in, in response to the intolerable. So it can't simply be an assessment from the outside, this is intolerable, this is repressive, this is horrible, but that must always become a shift in not only what one does, the activeness of the intolerance, but also what one feels, right? I cannot sustain this. This cannot be sustained. We cannot sustain this. Right, right. So let me get to the to the contents of, of the collection, and um, and and I'd ask you to to tell you know, to tell the audience and, and myself what you think. Uh, you know, are some of the uh, more significant arguments advanced there? Uh, you know, and and what makes them significant? I mean, I'll tell you, for example. You know, I mean, I guess this is typical Foucauldianisms. Um, but like you know, the, the inversion of the relationship of the body to the soul, like you know how, how uh, the technology of, of of the body and the technology of the soul, he he refers to in in a sort of inverted way as in, in relation to the to the uh, where, where the the um, what is it the body is the uh, prison of the soul soul was that oh no the soul is yeah. Um, the body is imprisoned by the soul. That that sort of idea. I, I know there are, um, you know, there are a lot of these sort of Foucauldian, and I suppose, in some ways, proto Foucauldian ideas, because he himself said he built upon a lot of the ideas that that, that came out of that activism. So, could you tell uh, our listeners um, what some of the the more significant ideas that have been advanced in this collection are? Uh, I'll, let me start with again, uh, Kevin, and then go to Perry. Yeah, so I I, I appreciate that last um, bit of the question that you were mentioning there. That Foucault really is in, and I think this is evident in this volume. Foucault really is in transformation and transition because of the context that is the collaboration he was undergoing in, in this period with his fellow members of the Jeep, both those who were outside, as we would say, uh, incarceration, and those who were incarcerated. And he learned much uh, from all of them. And so he really is undergoing transformation here. I do want to note that um, it, it is a little difficult. We've helped out in some cases because we've uh, tried to identify. But, um, you know, it, much of the Jeep material was um, on purpose anonymous uh, because they wanted to, though they had these kind of three uh, intellectuals, Foucault, Dominash, and Videl, Naki, were the uh, sort of uh, intellectual protectors of the group. When the group published things, it never published them as Foucault, right? It never published them as Defer, it never published them as um, Dominic or, or uh, Vidal Niki. So I think it's important to, to 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 note that. So it's hard to say, well, this is you know Foucault writing here, or this is someone else. We know roughly who edited which um, uh, which parts of the series, for example, uh, but they did not publicize that themselves because they wanted to. Uh, Perry was alluding alluding to this earlier. They wanted to de-emphasize their own position and allow the prisoners and the material itself, the information to speak for itself. So now more directly to your question, I do think there are some real significant highlights here. I think all the material, we obviously this is a selection, so we think all the material that we published here, originally we were going to publish a much smaller collection, but we became convinced that it really did require uh, uh, all the stuff you see in, in the volume itself. So in one sense, they're all important, right, is what we would say. But let me do highlight just a couple of, of, of material here. And one of them I would draw people to is one I always draw people to, which is uh, the report from Edith Rose. Uh, I think the Rose report is really important. She was a psychiatrist in the Tool prison, and she uh, published this uh, scathing report of the conditions inside the prison. Uh, Foucault writes a commentary on it, but I think the the, the report itself is highly significant just in the way that it documents in this kind of very, you know, counter discourse, counter information way. Here's what's actually going on inside the prisons. And she famously describes the restraints uh, that were used uh, against prisoners uh, and the kind of uh, arbitrariness of their detention and solitary confinement and how they were not actually allowed to see psychiatrists when they needed to, all that sort of uh, um, insight that she would have. And I think that's a really significant uh, piece in the in the volume. The other one, and I know Perry will want to speak more to this, but let me just uh, highlight it, is the publication of letters uh, from, as they call it, HM. Those are the letters, the initials they assign to a, a prisoner whose letters uh, between themselves, obviously, and their loved ones and others, um, uh, they publish in the fourth uh, uh, of the Intolerable series in a, uh, uh, in a volume that's called Prison Suicides. and. Uh, HM uh, eventually commits suicide, and that's 
obviously one of the reasons they wanted to publish this batch of, of letters, but also because suicide was something that, you know, the, the, the title of the, of the volume, the title of, of that particular uh, booklet plays on this, that that's a suicide that was produced by the prison conditions themselves. So it's not just someone personally taking their lives. Of course, that's literally what happened. But it was the conditions for that were produced because they were put in solitary confinement for being found to be homosexual while they were in prison. And uh, they were uh, um, forced in that sense, uh, uh, in the extreme, to find the only means of escape and protest they had, which was to commit suicide. So I think those are two uh, documents I would uh, call immediate attention to uh, in the volume. Perry? Yeah, I would say... It's nice to also contextualize what the arguments are that, that are made by the Jeep with what Foucault ends up doing later. So one of the things that uh, he insists upon is that he says the two or three good ideas in Discipline and Punish came from the Jeep. Um, mm-hmm. And we can name it – I can name at least two for now, which would be that um, delinquency is produced and is socially productive. And I think that um, – that this is not something that Foucault comes up with just, you know, as he's writing Discipline and Punish, but it's something that's palpable in the uh, work with the Jeep, that there's something, there's obviously something more going on than simply punishing um, someone or some group of people, right? The ways in which um, same sorts of people are incarcerated and repeatedly over and over again um, suggests that there is more, more socially... Um, productive work happening through the prison that is not really going recognized. The second thing would be that exclusion isn't the only kind of force of, uh, or effect of um, power uh, relations, but rather that there's also elimination. So there's an an eliminative move that happens through incarceration um, that, that you see through those losses, like of HM um, and other folks throughout the prison suicides booklet, but but other documents as well. So elimination, not just exclusion, happening here, and pr- the production of delinquency. Those are some of the arguments that I think the Jeep is proposing that that then inform what Foucault ends up doing and, and getting credit for. Um, but then, as far as what are the, some of the highlights in the book, the one thing I would want to point out um, about both the, the Dr. Rose. Dr. Rose's report and HM's letters is the, the the mental health issues that are being addressed by Dr. Rose and that are being experienced by HM, and and this is something important for the Jeep to bring forward, right? So that incarceration isn't simply about uh, innocence and guilt, isn't simply about class, um, but that there's there's sexuality issues, right? The punishment of HM by solitary confinement for homosexuality, the continual mistreatment of people with mental health um, struggles, that's happening it, over and above the quote-unquote punishment of being incarcerated, and, and that needs to be addressed. And then the highlight for me, obviously, is the very last piece, which is the interview with Elaine Sikhsu. And this is something that I was able to do as we were translating the volume. So it's the one piece that isn't part of the original archive, but that seemed necessary because of how little um, the role, the very active role of women in the Jeep was, how little that went recognized in the archival material itself. You know, over and over, we again, we see them agitating, we see them present in the protests, we see them editing um, the intolerable booklets, et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, very little of their voices are, are there. And that's ironic given the you know the emphasis on uh, an equality of voice that the Jeep itself is um, platforming. So um, yeah, just uh, you know, looking up Sixu, sending sending a missive saying, "Hey, would you mind talking about this this moment in your life?" And she was kind enough to uh, join me for for a few hours, and and the results are in the book. And I think what's powerful about what she mentions there there's many there's much that's powerful but one of the things is her emphasis on the the day in and day out intimacies or relations that produced the jeep that allowed it to function she said she got involved because of her friendship with Foucault right it's not just that Foucault was an important guy but we were friends and so we did this and you know we met in my apartment right that kind of really material um intimacy that happened to support 
organizing efforts. That seems to be crucially important. And it's something she also emphasizes about the university. So to go back to Kevin's uh, recognition that, that the JIP also sees the, the, the university as, as an intolerable institution, Siksu picks up on that in some sense again and says there are many ways in which the institution of the university is itself something that she cannot sustain. Um, but that what makes uh, it in some sense livable uh, is when um, new relations uh, and friendships are the foundation of, for example, Paris 8, the University of Paris 8, which she was involved with. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay. Um, well, uh, I, I suppose um, this is just a, a kind of a side question more on the production side, but it's interesting in terms of producing intellectual work, like what you all are doing. Um, uh, I'm interested in, like, in, in co-authored works, for example, I mean, so, so Perry, you, you identified a couple of, of your uh, favorite um, pieces, I suppose, uh, as did you, Kevin. Uh, are you guys in agreement as to what the most important pieces are, or is there a little bit of a, of a difference? That that's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know if you you've even discussed that amongst yourselves, uh, Kevin and Perry. But let, let me ask you: um, do you are, are you guys in? You know, do you, is there a consensus as to as to what the most important uh, extract is? Uh, you you have or, or, or piece or or do you guys have a slightly different uh, assessment of of what the um, most important pieces are out of this group and this period Harry correct me if I'm wrong I don't think we've ever really talked about that um, yeah. so this is, this is kind of an interesting question I don't know if there's large disagreement between us we we both we both came at this so I'll just speak from my side Perry you can you can talk about it obviously from your side but uh, we came at it I came at it with, well, look, we need to have samplings from all of the booklets in the Intolerable series. I thought that was an important thing to do. Perry seemed to absolutely uh, agree with that. And then we recognized, well, if you're going to do that, you've also got to have something from uh, their support for the uprisings. But you couldn't really pick between the uprisings because they were all happening pretty much in parallel with one another. So you really need to have samplings from all that as well. And then Perry said, well, you know, that means we should have probably the grievance book. Uh, itself, the booklet they did with that. And, you know, the project just keeps expanding because we find more material that we, that we both love and we both think is absolutely central uh, to be there. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's my side of it. Perry, do you want to speak to that? Yeah. And I just think it, it, it definitely, it was a snowball effect as we generated mm -hmm. what, what would end up going into the book. And we did originally think of it first as just a symposium of a couple pieces in a journal and then maybe a full special issue. And then, oh, maybe just like a small book. And now it's a, a, a large book. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, as it grew, right, it, it did a it did better justice to to the richness of the archive itself, and then again we must recognize that there's a lot more material um, there. Some of the things we didn't include, for example, are are the, the they put on a play um, after one of the revolts, and and we don't have that in there. But um, and that would be you know arguably that would be important to recognize that there was also creative outlets, not simply the standard kind of essay and um, commentary. But um, but we had to stop somewhere. Um, <laughs> that was that was crucially important. And I should mark right there that that once we moved to the you know it's going to be a huge book, um, we did bring on Eric Baranek, um, who's the co-translator with me. And it really I could I couldn't have done it without him. He was an absolutely fantastic colleague. His ear for French is is wonderful. And um, uh, yeah, that, that that made that just completed our team really. Kurt, I, I want to just mention one thing because it occurred sure. to me when Perry was mentioning this, particularly about the, the fact that we did not include uh, the uh, the um, play that they they constructed because Sixu was involved in the construction um, of that play and the performance of that play as, as well. Um, 
And I do think it was really important. And Perry pushed this, and she he's absolutely right about this, that that you have to have documentation, not just allusions to it, but actual documentation of the importance of women to this group. Because if you just read it, you won't see it, right? You won't, as he was saying, you won't see it in the in the writings themselves. You won't see the uh, activity and the participation that they had. And so that's why I think that Perry's interview with uh, Sixu is so incredibly important. Um, as as he said, it's one of the you know only documents. It is the only document we have here, the only piece that we have here that's not in, a part of the original archive. But I think that this is the only place I know of that Sixu certainly has spoken at this length about her own involvement with the G and the motivations and 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 active activities. Uh, that she partook uh, in in the in the in the group itself, and I think that that's a, a, a really standout uh, piece that Perry was able to secure for us. And it's a brilliant interview. The, the questions that Perry poses uh, and these responses it elicits—it's a very difficult thing, as Kirk, as you know, to interview people and elicit responses that are really uh, uh, informative out of them. Uh, Perry does a wonderful job of that, and uh, uh, Sixu really gives us a, a, a much more broader picture uh, and more intimate. I think that's the right term for it. Uh, Sixu talks about, you know, her, her, her kids were involved as, you know, putting uh, uh, things into, into letters and, and putting letters into envelopes. And, you know, the real work of militant activism, right, is anyone who's been in an activist group knows a lot of it's very simple, mundane, boring stuff where you have to fill out papers and put documents into, into, into envelopes. And that's really what was going on in a day-to-day life in that, in that um, apartment. And it was great to have that insight. And that's the only, the, the only way you'll get that insight because Perry and I poured over the actual archive uh, that is held in France. And you don't see this kind of stuff because it's not documented, but in an interview session, you can have that, um, you can have that brought out. So I think that's an amazing piece there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does sound amazing. And I think you guys have made a, a very strong case for the publication of that play. <laughs> right um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, um, you know, as uh, CLR James is someone who I'm, I'm very, very uh, interested in as well. And, and sort of in his collection, in, when people collect uh, his works, which are scattered among pamphlets and sometimes, you know, plays and stuff like on Toussaint Louverture and, and things like that um yeah those, those um i i i think you know it, it, you know art as politics is is certainly counter uh, discursive and so yeah so i i would uh, encourage you to perhaps um consider getting that play published as well mm. and and you could use that uh, interview as a preface or something mm. <laughs> yeah that would be great uh, yeah. let me um uh, and and let me direct this question a bit more to Perry, since he, he was um, one of the translators, uh, and and this is also something very interesting I find about you know um, uh, um, moving from language to language. Uh, I I I always re- remember and and in the maybe it was I think the early nineties. Uh, Camille Paglia's uh, criticism of the French post-structuralists and, and whatnot, uh, and and uh, Americans' misunderstanding of them. And one of the things she points to is the incredible difference between the French language and American English in particular, and um, how you know there, there's a whole uh, world that like how formal and uh, you know the, the French language is, etc. Um, and 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 how many of these things are uh, sort of not translatable in uh, to to most Americans. I, I always find that found that a very very fascinating uh, insight that that she added um, to that. And uh, so I I was just wondering, um, uh, Perry, about the uh, challenges that uh, you might have faced while translating Foucault, because I mean even in in uh, for native French readers, I suspect he's he's not an easy read. But then also, I mean, uh, I you know I've never really read Foucault in depth in French, but you know the, the little bits I, I've seen, like for instance, even even w- when I saw um, you know power knowledge in its French form, pouvoir savoir, it's like oh wow, that's so that flow you know that has such a poetic flow and everything that is just totally lost in the English part. <laughs> But I, I I don't know if you have any comments to make about the translation itself, Barry. 
Yeah, I would say uh, I would say because um, my kind of translation and, and French training were always in the academy and were always in uh, more philosophical contexts, the translating Foucault was really no problem. Um, you know, once in a while there's something sticky, but if if you're used to reading him already in English, it's it's not yeah. it's not re- it's not really that hard. Or if you're used to translating academic work, um, it's not too bad. What was really challenging for me uh, and as well as for Eric was um, more the the contributions from from prisoners. For example, the um, the letters from HM. Not only is it so rich in colloquialisms and mm-hmm. just sort of an everyday kind of um easy french there but um but there's but there's also the fact that he's he, he's writing these letters often at night um after he's taken um a, a medication to help him sleep um that and 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 so you see and you hear you have to hear and see that he's kind of losing a little bit of a grip on language itself mm-hmm. and so so not just the challenge there is not just translating standard french right but translating um a French tired that, guy. <laughs> yeah, French that is not just tired but drugged, right? Yeah, uh, liter- literally. And that that was that was the hardest thing I would say about about tr- translation work in the volume. And then I would add uh, from the editorial um, perspective, and I'm sure Kevin can speak to this as well. Just the the significant editorial annotations that we add to the volume so that it can be really vibrant and historically accurate um, fifty years after. The events that was incredibly difficult to track down, you know, minutia of history and prison protocol and context um, from a time when the internet didn't, yeah. <laughs> you know, didn't exist, and so there aren't. It was that that was also super challenging. Kevin, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so I I, I absolutely concur that the 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 editorial challenge for us was not just selecting the material and then publishing it. It was selecting the material, but also contextualizing that material. And Perry did a, an amazing job of tracking down so many references in this volume. And then we've, you know, so uh, there's a lot of editorial notes for that reason alone, just trying to say, well, here's what that reference, because at the time, you know, 1971, someone would have known the reference, but we don't know the reference now. Yeah. Even in France, they wouldn't know the reference now. So you have to track mm-hmm. that down and document that. And we also added a, a chronology. We added... Uh, a um, a list of the contributors and some information about them, about all these groups that are referencing. So we try to provide a lot of context that makes the volume longer. But a lot of that's uh, editorial apparatus is, is, we believe, absolutely necessary for that. So that was part of the editorial challenge. But I do want to speak to one of the other things that, that Perry just mentioned, because I think this is really a significant achievement that Perry and Eric have, have accomplished here. And that is these, this material spans the full spectrum from the writings of someone who's undergoing mental breakdown, which is what's happening in the letters uh, of HM, both uh, for all sorts of reasons, right? So it's the, losing the grip on language, I think, is an excellent way of describing what's going on there. So you have to be able to translate that well, right, and catch mm-hmm. the not only just what was said, but how it was being said and the illusory nature of what was being said. So that has to be captured all the way to incredibly terse, rigid, documentarian type language uh, at the other end of the extreme, which are just so much, you know, brutal facts are just being relayed. And this is happening and this is happening. And you have to know procedures. And what does that refer to when they're talking about being put in, you know, if you find out restraint, what kind of restraints are they undergoing? All this kinds of, all this and everything in between, right, has to be translated into fairly recognizable English, right? It can't have, because it's not academic prose. It's not mm-hmm. academic French prose. It's not academic. You can't translate it into academic English prose. So you really need to capture the colloquial nature and the various different clo- uh, uh, colloquial natures of those writings. And that's a real huge challenge. And I think Perry and Eric did a, a, you know, a, a an amazing uh, job and accomplishing in accomplishing that task. All right. Good. Um, and I want to now, um, you know, kind of put this in into the uh, it, the significance of of the work and in, in understanding uh, Foucault's thought and his development and changes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so you know, I, we we've we've kind of spoken about it uh, um, in our discussion so far, but but let's sort of deal with it a, a little bit more head on. 
you know, so the, um, you know, so throughout the, the work, you know, I, I, I see, um, concepts like, uh, abolition or inhumanity or inequality or justice and injustice and, and resistance, um, as, as, uh, as, as part of, of, you know, uh, talking about sort of the aims and, and, um, and describing their actions. But then, you know, in, in Foucault's, um, general work, um, you know, perhaps outside of this, perhaps it's, it's, it's even part of this in, in some way. I, I'm not sure you can tell me, but you know, his, his nihilism, his, his critique of, of liberation, his anti-humanism, uh, you know, and, and to me, you know, there, there seems to be, you know, a, a contradiction, uh, there that, that needs to be, uh, meditated upon. I, I, I think that that is quite interesting to, to, um, to examine. And, uh, I mean, is, is this mediated in any way or, or addressed or, or is it sort of simply, uh, left un- unresolved as, as perhaps a, a productive tension um you, do you have any comments on that um uh, kevin and then perry yeah so i think this is really a significant question about you know what is what's the relationship of the jeep to what you know we think of now as foucault um and what i hope this volume does and i'll speak more about foucault's development here but one of the things i hope this volume does is contextualize foucault's own development uh in this period which i think was very fertile for works obviously like Discipline and Punish, but also the History of Sexuality uh, series that he uh, went on to, to to produce as well. And much of his later thinking uh, was informed by this. Uh, as Perry said at the beginning of our discussion, one of the things he was most interested in, uh, that Perry was most interested in, was trying to think through the material conditions of the production of thought. And uh, so I think this period is very rich for that uh, in, for Foucault scholarship and thinking about Foucault. So, you know, the, the sort of standard view of Foucault as a nihilist and as a critic of liberation and as an uh, anti-humanist, um, I, I understand that, right? I understand where that comes from. And what you see him doing in this period is being pretty cautious about how he wants to describe things. DeFer is, is quite willing to call things unjust and inhumane. Uh, things that you would never hear out of Foucault nor expect to hear. You would be scandalized if you heard them out of Foucault because they refer back to some sort of moral values. They refer back to some kind of uh, endorsement of enlightenment conceptions of humanity and liberation and emancipation. Um, uh, DeFerre and others were much more comfortable using that language. Foucault, one of the things he really likes, I'll just reference one of the things we talked about earlier, but I think it's indicative more broadly of Foucault's participation in the group. One of the things he really marks out in the Rose Report is that it doesn't engage, it does not engage in moral criticism. And he's very adamant about this. There's no, and if you look at the report, that's exactly true. Uh, Dr. Rose never once says, this is unjust. She's just literally saying, here's what took place, here's what happened. So it's much more journalistic, much more reportage, right? Much more uh, mm-hmm. reporting of what was going on at the time. And Foucault endorses that because I think that's really what Foucault his insight is, is that if we engage in, this goes back to something we talked about a little bit earlier, but if we engage in a moral critique, right, if we say this is unjust and we invoke justice as our supreme uh, normative value, for example, that we will be playing into and allowing to remain established and secure this kind of carceral apparatus, which works in terms of blame and innocence and guilt and uh, punishment. And if we if we endorse that by the very critique we're making of it, then we won't really have done what we need to do here, which he became convinced was to trouble and unsettle the whole apparatus itself, right? And that's really, it seems to me, Foucault's insight, one of the many, as Perry was mentioning several earlier, but that's one of the real insights that Foucault takes out of this period is that if we engage in a kind of moralistic critique of the prison system or any kind of oppressive system, then we always are, are in danger of not criticizing the very framework within which that system actually operates, which is ultimately what we need to be doing. We need to problematize this practice and problematize this institution and problematize this carceral system and the carceral society in which we live. And if we are going to do that, that means we can't just be about reforming these in terms of emancipatory goals, as laudatory as those may be, 
we have to ultimately be challenging the very terms under which the system itself is constructed. Yeah, I would add that um, in one of the interviews um, that we collect in the book, Foucault kind of characterizes the moment in which he takes on the Jeep. And one of the things he says is that um, he's incredibly frustrated at that point with literature and with theory um, and what he talks about as, uh, and this is a direct quote, university yakking and book scribbling. Um, and so there's, there's a, there's, he's at this juncture in his career. It's hard to imagine that he's frustrated with university yakking and book scribbling, given how much of it he does. But, um, but he's at this point where he's just incredibly frustrated with with talk and with and, and not with actions in some sense and with doing. And he says, you know, I want to. I he said I, I needed a moment in which I was I did something that was truly concrete, that was something truly engaged, um, that was real and hands on. And so I think what's helpful about about this particular interview is to think um, that Foucault is in a moment that is of transformation himself. So we can certainly try to track what's happening in his development and try to kind of hold him accountable in the Jeep work to other claims that he's made before and after. But I think it's also really important to recognize that he himself wanted to place himself in a position of being changed and of experiencing something he couldn't have done by himself and of thinking things he couldn't have thought by himself. Um, and so that's part of what's experimental about about his engagement, but also about the Jeep itself. Right. And I, I guess related to this question, I, I'd like you to, um, you know, tell us, um, you know, what, what do you think this collection contributes, you know, to, to understanding Foucault's thinking? I mean, do you think this is something, um, you know, extremely essential to, to sort of understanding the, the later phase, for example, of, of, of his thought uh, that, that this um, perhaps sheds insight um, that, uh, you know, that was perhaps previously um, unknown, especially to English audiences. Um, I, I'm not sure. Can you um, give us your understanding of how this fits into understanding Foucault? Kevin, you want to take a stab first? Um, sure. So. Let me just highlight uh, one thing that Perry mentioned earlier, but I think really is significant here. And you know, there's been a there's been a lot a lot of talk about the the theory of power, the conception of power that um, that Foucault has uh, on you know evident obviously in Discipline and Punish and History of Sexuality volumes, um, and he articulates in a period. But if you want to know where he got that, right, one of the central resources is this experience with the Jeep. He's very clear, right, that when he walked out of the tour of Attica that he made um, uh, at the end of this period, um, he, he, he became convinced that power was not just restrictive, that it was productive as well. And I think that's an essential insight that we, we still have today as part of the Foucauldian legacy. And that insight is born of this engagement in the Jeep, right? Um, that's really the, I'd say, one of the the, the central insights uh, that he comes to through his engagement in this kind of this this practice, right? This this concrete uh, activity, and I think that that's really significant in a kind of obvious sense. Uh, we wouldn't, you know, be talking about Foucault on power if we didn't have this understanding of power as productive. And I think that really does come out of this period um, and, and what he learned from the Jeep. So repression is but one form of power and doesn't get at the microphysical, as he put it in, in, in Discipline and Punished, the microphysics of power itself. And that's what the Jeep taught him was this, how, how power is material in this very mundane, microphysical uh, way. It's about gestures, not about um, uh, large structures holding power over others. Um, and I think that that's, that's an important insight. Right? Uh, Perry, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, and then Kevin and I both have a real commitment to um, holding on to the truth that this uh, collection cannot simply uh, help us understand what Foucault was thinking or what Foucault was doing or his life story, but that the the Jeep is always far more than Foucault. And so we've we've gone back and forth over the years, and and we certainly have a tensed relationship with our own choices to, you know, feature Foucault on the cover and in the book title as well. We understand that this is the, the Jeep is significant in some sense because of its correlation or relationship with Foucault, but it was 
because it was so much more, we also want to insist that the jeep sort of be grappled with on its own terms and in its own complexity and for all the many people who were uh, involved in it. And I think at that level, it's it, the collection just um, really invites us to think much, much sort of bigger, more general questions about uh, how our theories are built and how our coalitions are formed and what are the the uh, a, a kind of the the structures of silencing that happen in and outside of university walls. What are the politics of voice in which we engage? Um, and what are perhaps what are prisoners' assessments of prisons in our own cities and in our own country? Right? There's there's a lot there's a lot that the Jeep insists that we ask. Um, that seems seems relevant for for everyone and not just Foucault's own intellectual journey. Okay. All right. Well, um, thanks uh, for for that. We're coming to the end, but b- before uh, before we go or, and close off, I just want to ask you if there are any projects right now that you're working on that you'd like our audience to know about. Um, Kevin and then Perry. Yeah, so I'm working on many projects, but relevant to what we're doing here, I'm writing a book on Foucault on methodology. So what is archaeology? What is genealogy? What uh, Those kinds of questions. But I'm also more relevant to the, the, the Jeep here. I And again, like with Perry, we, this began, this begins, and I'm hopefully, hoping that it will remain a small project. It may balloon. Uh, but uh, on the other group, or one of the other groups that Foucault was participating in during the same period and, and modeled on the Jeep, and that is the uh, medical information group, uh, which um, had important roles in uh, making abortions available and possible in a time when it was uh, still uh, outlawed in in France. That will become obviously relevant again now. And so I'm I'm hoping to have uh, edit- I'll do editorial work there and translation work there on that material, and we'll hopefully have that uh, material uh, published. It's less of an archive; it's not as broad uh, of an archive, or it's not as uh, uh, populated as an archive is the one we have here, but I think it's really, really significant, important material. Again, because, I'll just go back to something Perry was alluding to, um, the organizational structure of it being a kind of leaderless group, a leaderless organization, uh, and uh, really a collaborative, participatory uh, way of, 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 of conceiving of action. And I think that's really significant in both of the groups. So I'm looking forward to hopefully publishing that in the, in the near future. Great. Yeah, and I just I just had come out a book uh, entitled Curiosity and Power, um, the Politics of Inquiry, earlier this year, and I would just mark that it was uh, really really informed by this you know ten years worth of uh, engagement with the Jeep and with Kevin, uh, because in that book I'm I'm really interested in the social political structures that inform the questions we ask and how we ask them and whose questions get recognized and picked up and which ones don't. Um, so that that seems to be the the easiest kind of work for me to point um, audience members to as something that was inspired in, in many ways by by the Jeep. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been very informative and enjoyable. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you, Kurt. Yeah. Well, once again, the book is Intolerable, Writings from Michel Foucault and the Prisons Information Group, 1970 to 1980. And we've been speaking to the editors, Perry Zern and Kevin Thompson. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.